Thanks very much indeed. Um, lovely to be with you all, um, in spirit at least, and, and in this virtual form. I hope we'll be able to meet again soon in person. There's no real substitute for it, although um, this, this is not bad at all, is it? Certainly so far this evening. Um, and it's a real pleasure to, to be doing this with Peter, whose, whose work I've hugely admired for some years now. Um, and and uh, thanks very much, Daisy, for calling me legendary, which I think is just another word for old. Um, but um, the subject we're going to uh, talk about over the next five minutes or so is, is, is of course, the corruption of democracy by money. Um, it's, it's very striking when we think about democracy, we often, um, you know, go back to the origins of the word itself in, in ancient Athens. And people think about Athenian democracy um, as, as the forerunner of what we've got. Um, was a big difference, which is the, the council in Athens was not elected. Um, it was chosen by ballot. A ballot means by uh, a sort of random process of people, you know, putting their, the equivalent of putting their name in a hat and it's, it's, it's pulled out at random and everybody has to put their name in the hat sometime. Um, and there's a very good reason why the Greeks, the Athenians said, no, we're not doing, we're not electing the council because if you elected the council, rich people would be able to corrupt the process <laughs> and randomness is the only way to do it um, and of course they were able to do that because they had very small elite um, intimate communities um, where they were able to operate in that way uh, but with the development of modern democracy that we obviously we, we have to do elections uh, but we're haunted by that exact same question that the athenians have which is like if, if you're going to have elections how do you stop the rich and powerful people from exerting undue influence on people in order to get them to vote the way they want? Um, and of course, this, this is a question which has been there from from beginning of, 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 of uh, the development of democracy. One of the key reasons why the demands of um, working people, the people who are looking for, for the right to vote, was always for the secret ballot. It wasn't just to be able to vote, it was to be able to vote in secret. Why? Because if it was, if it was open, somebody could exert an undue influence on you. They could intimidate you, uh, or they could mock you, or they could do something else to make you vote the way they wanted. Um, and in most of our Western democracies, we're, we're not primarily concerned at the moment with direct intimidation, although we may um, be seeing some of that in, in, in voter suppression in the United States. Uh, but we are clearly seeing um, whole new ways of exerting undue influence through money. And Peter's written an absolutely brilliant book, I think, which, which illuminates uh, how this process has happened and raises questions about what we might do about it. Um, Peter, I suppose perhaps the best place to start is at the beginning. Um, not many um, great ideas for books start on a train somewhere outside Sunderland. So you might just explain to us how yours did. Yes, so this, this book really uh, started remarkably, I think, four years ago, almost exactly, about two days before the Brexit referendum, back in June, the back end of June 2016. I was just a jobbing reporter and I went to, to Sunderland to write about this vote to leave the European Union. You know, Sunderland is a city, about 80,000 people, northeast of England, kind of seen as a bit of a Brexit heartland, really. And I wanted to find out what was going on. 
But just as I was leaving, um, I was getting on the, the metro and I saw a free a newspaper, a free newspaper, and had a big advert on the front of it. And it said, like, take back control, which was the slogan of the Brexit campaign. But I was kind of interested in it, so I turned it over and I noticed it had the logo of the Democratic Unionist Party and a little imprint that said paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. And I was very curious about this because the Democratic Unionist Party are a party from Northern Ireland and what were they doing advertising on a train in Sunderland? And, you know, I did that journalistic thing where I thought I was a bit curious, I sent a tweet and I kind of put the newspaper in my bag and started furiously filing my copy for the next day's paper and didn't think too much about it. But over the coming months, I started going back to it. I was kind of itchy about it. I was like, why was this going on? Why was the Democratic Unionist Party paying for some big ad in Sunderland? Um, and interestingly, uh, another colleague of mine, Adam Ramsey at Open Democracy, he got in touch saying, I'm interested in the Brexit uh, money that the DUP spent because I was... Uh, I was, in some, I was in Edinburgh just before the vote too, and I could see all these placards paid for by the DEP. So two of us started looking into it, and there's a loophole in Northern Irish electoral law, which means that um, if you give donations, they're secret. Because of the troubles, the idea was you should try and protect the identity of donors. And the long and the short of it is we ended up publishing a series of articles, but it turned out the Democratic Unionist Party had received almost half a million pounds from an anonymous donor for its Brexit campaign. This money was funneled through a thing called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds really great, it sounds really grand, it sounds like the kind of thing you imagine as a big office in the middle of London. It really doesn't. It's one man uh, called Richard Cook who lives in a pebble dash, um, semi-detached house on the outskirts of Glasgow, and it has no legal standing whatsoever, it doesn't file accounts, it doesn't do anything like that, but it can give money to political causes because you don't have to actually constitute yourself to give money to political causes. Um, and so we started looking into this. We found out that uh, Mr. Cook had gone into business with the head of Saudi, a former head of Saudi secret intelligence and a, a Danish man had been involved in gun running. We found lots and lots of other kind of interesting and surprising things about this money. And that kind of started me asking this bigger question of, you know, who pays for our politics and how is influence bought? If before the biggest vote really, probably in modern British history, a party could spend almost half a million pounds advertising in voters in a completely different place to they are, but what else can be done? So the book kind of came out of that. Four years later, I tried to answer some of those questions, but I'm sorry to say, I still don't know who gave the Democratic Unionist Party all that money. Um, so there's still loads of secrecy. If you know and are listening, please get in touch because I'm always very keen to find out. Um, I mean, obviously, the Brexit campaign and everything that happened around it is maybe one of the reasons why so many people have become so conscious about this issue around around dark money and around the the, the, the uses of um, hitherto unknown ways of influencing votes. And one of the things I, I thought is very strong in the book is that you avoid the temptation, the obvious temptation of saying, look, Brexit is only about the dark money. And if it wasn't for all of these shenanigans, Brexit would never have happened. And I think you, you would rightly say, we just don't know the answer to that question. There's no way we can ever, we can ever know that. But I think what's most striking is, 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 is really not going back into that and trying to think, well, you know, uh, did, did it or did it not have a determinative effect on, on the vote? What's really striking is thinking about what version of Brexit do the people who are putting up the money want? <laughs> and is that version the same version as, as, as voters were told they were going to get? Uh, how, how far have you got in terms of trying to answer that question, which I think is still very much a live one because we still don't really know yet what the, what the real version of Brexit that these people want is? 
I think that's very much a question I try and address in this, because the book kind of charts almost the history of Brexit as an idea, the history of Britain leaving the European Union, and connects it. I try to connect it with what this kind of rising idea of the Anglosphere, this idea that Britain should leave the European Union and kind of find a new uh, home with English-speaking countries and white English-speaking countries. And this kind of idea of bringing Britain closer to America and, and the money that went with that. Because, you know, American politics for a long time has run on what you call dark money. It's run on anonymous political donations. It's run on huge amounts of lobbying. And very similar things were happening in Britain. But what's fascinating in some respects is the Brexit referendum was won by a, a, an unruly coalition, a bit like the Donald Trump victory that happened a few months later. It was a coalition of people with money who were uh, very much in favour of deregulation, very much in favour of kind of unfettered capitalism, and a quite um, reactionary um, nationalism that wanted closed borders and wanted kind of the retrenchment of the nation state. And these two things have both, like, just like Bar uh, Donald Trump has struggled, I think, at times to keep these two camps simultaneously in the, um, together, it's just very much the same thing here in Britain. And remarkably, I think four years on, we're still not sure who's actually, who's in the ascendant between those. We will find out more, I think, in the coming months. But what we have seen more and more in the interim period is the role of political money in Britain has changed since the Brexit referendum. You know, the party that gets the most money in Britain from private, uh, from private donors by a long way is the Conservatives. And their donor profile has changed a lot. They've become far more Eurosceptic, far more involved in kind of speculative finance, things like hedge funds, also in property, and just far more what you might call disruptive capital. Historically, the, the Conservative Party was the kind of scions of industry, the kind of the captains, the kind of the big landowners. And now they're becoming more and more the party of actually disruptive capital. Who I think it's fair to say do see opportunities in disruption. There's there's money to be made in chaos. We saw that in the 2008 financial crisis, and I think it's one of the big disconnects almost that still runs through British politics is the interests of the people who are putting up the money for politics are often quite different to the interests of the people who are voting for political outcomes. You you mentioned there that this sort of connection really between what's been happening in Britain and what had already started happening on a huge scale in the United States. One of the things that uh, strikes me um, is, is, is how cheaply the process can be bought in Britain. <laughs> you know, um, of course, there's vast amounts of money um, pouring into elections in, in the US, and we've known this for, for a long, long time, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. What, what's very striking from what you uncover um, in, in relation to Britain is that given how much vast dark money is sloshing around, in, particularly in London anyway, and the way it's become one of the, one of the capitals of, of, of money laundering in the world, um, it's it's a pretty good bet, isn't it? I mean, if you if you want to have a bit of political influence, make connections with with people at the very top, um, you're not necessarily talking about having to you know bet your house on it. You can you can do this. Um, that the entry cost for this kind of influence is is pretty low. When I first started doing this work, I thought. Money isn't as much of a problem in Britain because it's not like America. You don't need to spend you know, huge sums. In, the 20, in 2018, $6 billion was spent on the midterm elections in America. In Britain, nothing like that. So I actually thought Britain doesn't have as much of a problem. And now, actually, the more I do the work, the more I think it's actually the opposite. Access is bought so cheaply that you can influence politics for almost nothing. So if you've got £50,000, and to be honest with you, there's very little 
fit and proper person for that test for this, you can become what's called a leaders group donor to the Conservative Party. That allows you four times a year to meet the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers for secret, um, off-the-record dinners and briefings where no notes are taken, no records are kept of any discussions, and that's totally fine and totally legal. So that's not a huge sum of money, £50,000. Even less will get you all sorts of access. I spoke to um, politicians, uh, some of whom want to remain anonymous, who were just saying, like, a couple of thousand pounds will get you a meeting with a Cabinet Minister. It's, it's really, really cheap. And I think... We're seeing that this summer there's been a, a number of kind of money scandals in Britain around donors, Russian donors, but also uh, property developers in, in, in Britain getting, you know, preferential uh, prop, uh, kind of planning decisions given to them and donors subsequently given like £10,000, £12,000, really quite small amounts of money. But I think that actually shows how susceptible and corruptible the British political system is to this because it means that you can buy access just incredibly cheaply and there isn't the same culture of political donations as there is it is in america and what also what's happening as well is that in some jurisdictions the thresholds for reporting are actually way too high they're they're quite substantial which means actually so much is not done it is not recorded that would actually be influential so you don't have to really be transparent about all the donations that are going to political parties we have two very striking examples of the system not wanting to know, uh, you know, this deliberate obfuscation. So it's a pretty good principle in journalism, isn't it? If, if somebody doesn't want you to know something, it's pretty good guess that there's something pretty fishy about it. And if you take the DUP money, for example, there was an opportunity because those laws you mentioned that, that you know, political donations in Northern Ireland were not declared. Uh, that law was, was ultimately changed. You know, you've had the peace process for a long time, it's now safe. And that could have been done retrospectively, and a very deliberate decision was made not to do so. Uh, you might just tell us a little bit about that. But also, we have this extraordinary um, example of, of, of the Russian interference report, uh, which of course was, was delayed to coincide with your book, which I think was, was decent enough of your book. Uh, you know, w what comes out of that so strongly, of course, is, 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 is this looking the other way. You know, let's... let's Let's not go there because it would be political. You know, defending democracy would, would be too political. Could you just talk about what the relationship between the two of those things might be in terms of the attitudes that allow this kind of secrecy to, to continue unchecked? I think it's fair to surmise the attitude within the kind of political class in Britain towards this is very St. Augustinian. Please give me pure transparency and a very clean politics, just not quite yet. And every opportunity there is to, to kind of reveal something, to find some, to kind of, to bring some sunlight into it, it always just so happens to be turned down. So whether it's the DUP's money, which the legislation existed, all the parties had to abide by it, that uh, donations could be published at any time if the Northern Ireland Secretary said it. So they weren't in any doubt about this, that it could be published, but just so happens um, when they decide to look at this legislation and overturn it and bring in uh, donor transparency into Northern Ireland, they decided, man, let's not, um, let's not do it retrospectively. Let's start from today. And it just happened at the time that the Conservative government was relying on the Democratic Unionist Party in a confidence and supply agreement. And the Democratic Unionist Party really didn't want the Brexit donation being published. So you can draw your own conclusions on that. And 
obviously, as you say, very good timing in the Russia report. I was really pleased to see that it waited. Just my book was delayed by um, the pandemic, and, and good to see that the Russia report just decided to come out just at the same time. Uh, despite the best efforts of Boris Johnson uh, to gerrymander the process and not have it ever published. Um, and what's really striking, I felt, reading the report was time and again, the report writers basically say British democracy is not, it's not okay. Our institutions do not work. There's, it's ripe for abuse. Um, there's numerous uh, rep, uh, kind of, uh, references in this to it. And at no stage has anyone in government uh, subsequent to report to me and said, maybe we should do something about this. In fact, actually, almost at the exact moment that the report was being published, Chloe Smith, who's a minister at the Cabinet Office, Cabinet Office in charge of all this sort of stuff, in charge of a lot of things these days in Britain, um, Chloe Smith was giving evidence at a parliamentary uh, inquiry and said that electoral reform really wasn't a priority for the government. And um, there's even right now, as we speak, a committee looking into kind of the state of electoral, um, electoral law in Britain, but it's not going to include party funding within its remit. So it's quite clear at every turn, really, nobody wants to ask any of the hard questions on this. And it's very hard not to uh, kind of avoid the conclusion that one of the reasons they don't want to do it is because this system benefits almost all of them, and it particularly benefits the people who are in power at the moment. Um, and they won a general election campaign in 2019 using very many of the same vote leave tactics, both online and offline. So there's a sense in which I think the party of government in Britain doesn't want to doesn't want to talk about any of this stuff. I would much rather uh, pretend it was all a, a Remainer plot. Well, one should hope it is. But um, uh, I, I want to push this too far into the constitutional questions. But but you can't really avoid them, can you? When you look just last week at, at Boris Johnson's appointments to the House of Lords, the absurdity of a chamber of 800 people, the, the, the ability of a prime minister to, to just appoint pretty much anybody um, to you know, this, this honor, but not just an honor, it's actually part of the governing process. Uh, it's unparalleled in the democratic world. I mean, it's just, this is nowhere else half serious as a democracy where this would even be contemplated. Uh, is there a sort of vicious circle here where, where the availability of the dark money supports a kind of status quo, which in turn then rewards the people who, are, who, are, who, are, who, are, uh, who have the money and, and, and who, are, who are using the system? There seems to be no kickback against the sort of cronyism, the patronage. You know, one, one remembers in history where Lloyd George was an absolute disgrace that he had, you know, appointed so many cronies and people were giving money to the party, uh, to the House of Lords. This just now seems almost to be a kind of constitutional inertia about these scandals, just that this is just the way it is in Britain. It, last week's uh, honours was always almost a parody level where you know, Boris Johnson uh, makes a peer of his own brother, uh, party funders, uh, Evgeny Lebedev, the, the man who owns the Independent. You really couldn't, you almost couldn't write it. Um, I've done research before myself and my colleagues which found that uh, a fifth of top Tory donors had received knighthoods or peerages in the last 10 years. So the connection between um, money and getting gongs and rewards is really clear. And actually, indeed, earlier this year, there's reports that some Tory donors were getting very annoyed because they hadn't had their knighthoods yet or their peerages. You know, they'd given all this money and where, what, what had they got to show for it? So it's really, it's actually quite blatant. And the way the honour system is used to just reward uh, 
basically cronies. It's just, it's, it is, I think, unparalleled. And it's easy to forget that these peers, it's not just a gong. They actually are legislators. They're sitting in a legislative body. The idea is that they are holding the government to account. How much holding the government account is going to be done by someone who's given the party two or three million quid in a few years? There's also a really interesting thing you'll notice that party donations from big donors tend to dry up quite a lot once they've got their uh, peerages and knighthoods. So I can't fathom why. And we've all, it's, it's become, though I think it's, we're, unfortunately Britain is starting to get to a place where it's almost unshockable with these things. You know, it's, it's so steeped into the way politics has been run, from Lloyd George all the way up to now. There's never been, I think it's about 100 years since the last person was actually convicted of something to do with electoral fraud and electoral malfeasance. You know, the buying of honours is basically just accepted. And we had it, we had it during Tony Blair's time as well, that kind of cash for honours scandal. So this isn't just a, a conservative issue. This is an issue across the political spectrum. But every time there's been an opportunity for some sort of reform, it's always been turned away from. And I think we are now, I would agree, we're almost into a slight constitutional endgame. You've got the question of the, United, the future of the United Kingdom itself as a coherent entity. And just this sense in which the kind of constitutional inertia seems to feed off this vicious circle, the vicious circle you described, Fintan, where money does, money revolves around this and political parties depend on that money to survive. Ergo, they will continue to do these things because that's where the money comes from. Um, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about what, we, what might be done, um, but I, I, I just, for a moment, I thought it would be interesting just to talk about the context now of, of the American elections, um, I think there's a recognition that, that Trump's last play really is going to be online, you know, is that online space, which of course is, is itself hugely susceptible to, to bots influence, you know, and, 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 and the same kind of uh, a la carte attitude to the law. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, do, do you think there's a possibility that what happens in the American election could be, some sort of a game changer for, for reform, um, assuming that Trump is beaten. Well, I, I do think it's quite interesting at the moment. We're seeing like everyone getting very worked up about things that Donald Trump says about TikTok. You know, he, we, we all tend to get the kind of shiny thing, but Donald Trump says something and everyone kind of gets really vexed about it. But if, for me, the things that are really concerning are things like the states, law, states are bringing in laws that postal votes can only be counted if they arrive on election day or before, not after, which normally it's whenever you post it. If you post it by election day, then it's fine, which is a very major issue in America because postal votes are a huge thing. A lot of people do, um, have postal votes. Donald Trump is going crazy about postal votes despite postal voting himself. Um, and it's quite clear, I think, that we're seeing the electoral law, I think, could be a real touchstone in the coming months about what happens with the result. I think Donald Trump will heavily campaign online, but there's a real, I, I'm really concerned that kind of American electoral law could be tested to the very end, which we kind of started, it started to break a little bit in 2000, or 1999 with the, bar, with the Bush-Gore um, contested election. And that could have gone a lot further if, if Al Gore hadn't kind of pulled back. But if Donald Trump was to really force this issue, you know, it could be it could be seismic. In the same way that if he is defeated, if electoral law actually you know is, is able to kind of withstand that that kind of huge assault that you would imagine will come from Republican lawyers as well as the president, then there is you'd hope that there's a possibility for reform. The unfortunate thing in America is that every time there's been an opportunity for reform that's been taken, there's been so much pushback against it. 
for my book, I interviewed Russ Feingold, who was um, a Democratic senator who signed the famous act with the late John McCain. It's kind of bipartisan act that really transformed American political funding in the early 2000s. It went a long way to taking dark money out of politics. What was the response? A lot of the dark money donors got together and ended up in the Supreme Court with a very famous judgment called Citizens United, and which basically said, it is my right to give as much money as I want anonymously into political campaigns. That's a constitutional uh, right. And they won. And that's, I think that's when there's always been so much pushback, especially in America, when it comes to anything that helps transparency and helps, I think, even up the, um, the kind of playing field against big money and big uh, and its ability to sway the election. So just for the last couple of minutes, and um, what can be done? I mean, how, how, how would you start in, in the United Kingdom, at least, to establish a system of transparency and a system that's uh, robust enough to actually protect the right of citizens to vote without undue influence, which is really what we're talking about? I think the first place is really recognizing that there is a real problem. And I know we all feel it, but actually beyond the kind of people we talk to, I talk to anyway, you know, I'm not sure everyone realizes this is such a big problem. We don't really think and talk up much about money in politics, but we do realize, I think, that there's a problem with democracy and disenchantment. You know, if you, there was a study, a big survey done by Cambridge University earlier this year, that found a lot of disenchantment and dissatisfaction with democracy. And then around the world, that was highest in two democracies, the United States and the United Kingdom. And I think one, two things that connect those are disproportionate electoral systems, single uh, kind of uh, one, one really first past the post electoral systems and the role of money in politics. And I think, you know, in Britain, reform of both of those would go a long way to it. Parking the electoral reform issue, because that's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. When it comes to money in politics, there's actually quite a lot that could be done quite easily. For a start, we could have some legislation for online politics, because at the moment there's none. At the moment, basically, we have laws that are written for an analog age. So if you put a leaflet through my door as a politician, you have to have your logo, you have to tell me who paid for it. If you put that out on Facebook, you don't have to say anything. So we have that, that doesn't exist. There's quite simple things that you could do, like make a maximum donation from an individual, say £10,000 a year instead of unlimited. In France, it's €7,500, so it's kind of, of, of equivalent. That would help. You could make joining political parties tax deductible. That, again, would broaden out the scope for where parties, because parties still need money, where that comes from. There's lots of things I think we could, that could be done that would really help to rebuild uh, trust in democracy and, trust in, and, and to try and take the money out of politics. Because as long as politicians are dependent on cash, basically, from donors, often quite small amounts of cash, they are always going to be susceptible to the lower vested interest and the lower of um, having to keep donors sweet. And from that, when we, we will see scandals emerge all, time and again. Ta scandals within that system are completely inevitable. And all they do is further break down trust uh, in, the, in the political system. And until we start to address that and actually talk about it, it will get worse and worse and worse. And our elections will become more and more contested in the way the Brexit referendum, unfortunately, almost still is. And we're still talking about what happened four years ago. And that's not healthy. That's not a good thing. It's not a good place for democracy to be. Absolutely. Um... I think, you know, the note you ended on that, uh, you know, the, the, the need for just consciousness of it, talking about it, being aware of it, um, thinking about it, uh, because I imagine it's, it's one of those issues that when people actually get their heads around it all, the vast majority of people of, of different political persuasions actually feel pretty much the same thing, which is that if we live in a democracy 
um, it's worth defending that democracy, it's worth defending people's essential right to vote um, and, and not have it polluted by all of these factors. Um, it, it obviously doesn't suit a lot of people to have it spoken about and that's why your book is so important and, 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 and such a terrific book. It's, it's exciting, it's readable, it's, it's, it's immediate, it's urgent um, and it raises all these questions I think in a way that hopefully uh, will begin a much larger conversation uh, which um, would make the book I think a really important contribution um, to, to the democracy that it, it talks about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Phil. I just want to say thanks a million. Um, it's a shame we're not able to have a pint of Guinness in person to have done this, but maybe, uh, maybe in the post-COVID world we get a chance to do that too. <laughs>